<laughs> okay, so now the microphone is on. Uh, <laughs> Luke chapter 5 contains a lot of um, important, significant events early on in the life and ministry of Jesus. We have read already about the call of Peter, James, and John, who were witnesses uh, to Jesus' holiness with the miracle of the, the fish. And we see after that, in the presence of this, this holiness, we see Peter's penitence, um, his acknowledgement that he is a sinner. And then we go on to the healing of the leper and the, the desperation for this man to, to be cleansed by Jesus, dependence upon Jesus to do so. We see a rightful attitude towards the leper's own condition. He's aware of, of what he's suffering, and he requires cleansing. And then we see uh, the healing of the paralytic, which I'll, I'll briefly go over. We haven't gotten a chance to uh, to go over that. As Jim said, the, the fellow who was supposed to preach was was out. Um, basically, it's 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 the the famous story of the the paralytic who was uh, heard that Jesus was in the area, and was unable to get up and see him. Uh, so he had his friend take him to the house that Jesus was staying in. A uh, multitude of people were there. They couldn't get through the doors, so uh, they actually had to lower him down through the roof. And uh, Jesus saw him, and rather than immediately saying, get up and walk, Jesus says, the famous year, sins are forgiven. And this made the Pharisees very angry. Uh, we also read in, in John's Gospel how it, it was at this point that the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees changed because Jesus has now declared equality with God. He's declared the ability to forgive sins. Uh, and, uh, and so we see the, the tremendous faith in Jesus of the, the paralytic and his friends uh, for Jesus to heal him, the lengths that they went to due to their faith. And we see Jesus forgiving sins and healing. So saving faith, and, and Jesus has now been presented as the forgiver of sins. So let's just get right into our text this morning. It says, uh, verse 27, After this he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. Now just as a disclaimer, I may call Levi Matthew. Um, because it is the same person. If we, if we go to Matthew's Gospel, I believe it's in chapter 9, we see the call of Matthew as a tax collector. It is the exact same story, uh, almost verbatim. A few of the things have been changed, but um, Levi, Matthew, they're the same person. It was not uncommon for people in this time to have two different names. We have Peter, who was also called Cephas. We have Paul, who was also called Saul. Uh, so it wasn't uncommon for them to have two different names. I, I say that just in case you hear me say Matthew sometimes, and uh, you get confused. They're the same people. I'll try to be consistent. Um, but it says, after this, he went out, um, meaning right after he had declared himself the giver of sins, forgiven this man of his sins, this man has up and walking, and he has exited uh, this building. It says that he noticed a tax collector named Levi. Now, the, uh, the word noticed here, uh, it's, it's that way in the ESV and the NASB translation, the New American Standard. Um, I don't think that that is a very accurate rendering of what the actual Greek word here means. The Greek word is theaomai. I'm not a Greek scholar, so you'll have to forgive me. But basically, it means a little more than noticed. Um, the King James Version gets a little closer when it says that uh, he saw a tax collector. But what this word means is to gaze at or to observe intently and to interpret something's significance. And I believe that this is important when we, when we look at this passage because it, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus simply happened to notice that this man was here at the right place at the right time. Jesus was fixed on this individual. Sure, there was a large crowd, large crowd 
Tim, after these uh, significant events we've read early on about. Uh, So we see Jesus gazing intently at this tax collector. Now, all throughout Luke, we read about tax collectors figuring very prominently in parables and and, uh, interactions with Jesus. And I believe we lose kind of the significance and impact of tax collectors in this system uh, because we're so far removed from, you know, biblical Jewish uh, culture. Uh, so I, I feel like when we think, when we read a tax collector, uh, what we think of is pretty much like an IRS agent. And uh, I'm sure we all have our own opinions about IRS agents. But it goes a little bit deeper uh, in, the, in the historical context. Uh, tax collectors were not simply, uh, you know, they're, they're the, the IRS agents we think of today. They were considered the scum of Jewish society. So you have people like Peter, James, and John who were, fishermen, and they were kind of the lower uh, class. They were kind of your blue-collar, you know, worked with their hands, Uh, but they still had a reasonable reputation. Uh, As as we get into the the tax collectors, these were the the absolute bottom of the totem pole as far as, like, good people go. They were just not good people. Uh, We read, if we look back in Luke 3, um, when John the Baptist was, you know, telling everyone to prepare for the coming Messiah, uh, we see in, uh, in verses 12 and 13 that tax collectors approached John the Baptist and said, what must we do to prepare for the Messiah? And John replies, collect no more than you are authorized to. So that kind of gives us uh, an implication that they were known for being very greedy uh, individuals. It was, it was a, a, a haven for people who liked to get a lot of money in a very dishonest way. Um, and... Um, and you'd think that that would be enough for them to be considered the lowest of the low, but it actually goes a little bit further on into that. See, they weren't only considered uh, greedy and uh, extortionists and bullies, but they were also considered uh, traitors. Traitors. So they would steal money from their own people, and they would. Um, and this was usually under the threat of, of physical maiming. By the way, if you have any. Um, uh, knowledge about the, the mafia, the Italian mafia, and their reputation for extorting money under threat of physical maiming. The, the tax collecting system, uh, particularly in Israel at this time, was a lot like that. They would threaten to break your legs if you didn't have the money. Um, sometimes they would actually physically break your legs if you didn't have the money. But then they would take that money from their own people, and they would give it to Rome. Now, Rome was viewed by the Jews, I mean, any cursory look at, at the relationship and history between uh, the Jews and the Roman Empire, uh, it, was, it, was, it was viewed, the Roman Empire was viewed as, as evil. They were pagan oppressors. We know from uh, history that uh, Pilate, who ultimately uh, sentenced Jesus to, to die, uh, went into the temple at least on two occasions um, and desecrated the temple. He um, set up pagan images within the, the holy temple of the Jews. So the, the Jewish people hated Rome. There was even a, a, a special group called the Zealots that would specifically, they were a terrorist group that would target Roman citizens and assassinate them just in public. So they hated them. So tax collectors were seen as these lapdogs to Rome. Uh, what Rome would do is they would set up uh, a tax system in areas that they conquered. Rome was a huge empire. At the time, it was the, the largest empire in the world, and that needed money. So they would set up tax systems, and they would sell them to citizens in the, the captured area. 
and um, they would appoint these people as tax collectors. And there were two types of tax collectors that you could be. The first one is called uh, the Gabai. Gabai, G-A-B-B-A-I. And these handled the, uh, the fixed taxes. These were taxes that were set by Rome. There was a, a set amount that they were allowed to collect. Excuse me. And these were things like property tax and income tax and poll tax. And because these were fixed taxes, they were har- a little bit harder to kind of skim money off the top and, and be greedy with it, but it was still uh, certainly possible. And the Gabai were kind of seen as uh, of the two types. The, the Gabai were kind of the, the people who held on to some shred of, of dignity and, and honor left because it was less likely for them to, to extort and, and steal money from that. But the, the second kind uh, was called the Mocus. This is the second type of tax collector. And these are the guys that would fit your, your kind of description of the mafia. They handled every other non-fixed tax. And these were oftentimes set up erroneously by the, whoever the mocus happened to be at the time. This, these were things like a import tax, export tax, road tax, bridge tax, axle tax, parcel tax, beast of burden tax, letter tax. The, the point is that there were a lot of taxes, and the rates for these were usually arbitrary and set at the discretion of the collector. So this is where you got uh, very corrupt, very greedy. You would, for example, be uh, carrying something in your cart down one road, get stopped by a tax collector, and they would say something like, that'll be $100 today for everything. Your taxes are $100. And you could go back the next day, have the exact same setup, you know, exact same uh, load, and they could say, okay, it's going to be 300 today. They had the ability to do that. And like we've talked about before, uh, if you didn't pay you might get your legs broken. Uh, and within the mocus, there were two uh, different types of mocus. I promise this is not going to get smaller and smaller. <laughs> this, is, this is where we stop differentiating. But we, had, we have the great mocus, which is the behind-the-scenes uh, guys. These would kind of be your dons, if we're still carrying with the, the mafia illustration. These, these would be the behind-the-scenes guys. They owned the larger tax franchises, and they would usually hire... Um, other people to do the, the physical collecting. They would never be uh, seen, but they would be pulling all of the strings. Um, these were called the chief tax collectors. Further on in, in Luke uh, 19, we read about Zacchaeus, who is referred to as a chief of tax collectors. Zacchaeus was a great mocus. And then you have the little mocus. Now, the little mocus were the guys that work in the tax booths. These were the, the grunts of the, uh, the, the system they collected from people directly. These were people likely employed by the great mocus to, uh, to do the collecting. And they were despised the most because they were actually face-to-face with people. They, they were able to uh, match a face to this, this hated evil system. Uh, and so they were, they were at the bottom of the bottom. Levi was a little mocus. And we know that because it says that he was working at a tax booth. He was likely very wealthy. Uh, we read about Zacchaeus. When he finally had his change of heart, um, he was able to give back all of the money he extorted four times over. So it was definitely a lucrative business. He was a, he was a very wealthy individual, uh, and likely Levi was as well. And so Jesus, this uh, holy person whom Levi probably has heard of, we, we read earlier uh, in Luke chapter 5 that the uh, Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, Judea, and uh, 
Galilee have, have all flocked to where Jesus is because they've heard about him. So it's likely that Levi knew about this individual. And so he knew who Jesus was, and, and I'm sure he felt some level of discomfort by being stared at by Jesus, this person he's heard of, this, this immense reputation, and um, probably expecting some type of uh, scorn or revilement or, or um, something negative, certainly. I'm, I'm sure Levi was used to hearing things like that, but Jesus says, uh, it says, he said to him, follow me. Now, follow uh, the, the Greek word that is, that is used here is the, the same word that was used for Peter, James, and John. And it means to uh, not, not just physically follow someone who's walking in front of you, but it means to follow as a disciple. So already the people that were following Jesus in this crowd have witnessed a ridiculous, uh, inconceivable thing by Jesus being a, a holy person who has now claimed equality with God to be lowering himself to, first of all, even, even talk to and notice this individual, but to, to tell him to follow him. To the, to the Pharisees, this was a ridiculous social taboo that was uh, unthinkable. And um, as I was reading this, um, I kind of have to, to wonder what Levi was thinking at this point, knowing, knowing who Jesus was and hearing this um, startling uh, command from Jesus to, to become one of his disciples. Um, it's likely that, that Levi knew what he was as far as being a, a person on the, the bottom of the chain in the eyes of other people. Um, did Levi know? Did Levi think that way about himself? Did he feel some kind of like guilt and um, acknowledgement that he was a, a person of ill-gotten wealth and had, had this reputation for, for doing all of these terrible things? Of course, Scripture doesn't say, but... Um, uh, I know for me personally, if I were, if I were in, in Levi's shoes and, and someone uh, that had such a sterling reputation for already doing miracles and claiming equality with God, if he said uh, something like, you know, follow me, become my disciple, and I knew who I was in, in society, I would probably say, uh, absolutely not. You're ridiculous. You have to be talking to the wrong person or you're setting me up for some kind of terrible joke. Um, but that is not... What Levi does, we read in verse 28, it says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi didn't hesitate when Jesus commanded him to follow him. He didn't think about it. He didn't give Jesus reasons why he shouldn't be a follower. He didn't tell Jesus to wait until closing time. He, he got up and he left everything. Like I said, it's, it's likely that, that Levi knew who Jesus was probably couldn't even understand why he had talked to him in the first place, but to give him such a, 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 an undertaking as this. I'm, I'm reminded of the, uh, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, 9 through 14. It's the parable of the tax collector and the, the Pharisee. And um, we don't have to turn there. Uh, I'll just summarize it. It's, it's basically two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the, the Pharisee prays this uh, enormous, ostentatious prayer. You know, look at me, I fast all of these times during the day. I give all this money to the poor. I'm so great, thank goodness. I'm not like this tax collector over here, this sinner, this, this person that embodies just filth and sin. Uh, but the tax collector, Jesus says, was uh, unable to even look up into heaven, but declared, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I feel like there were these things, these wheels moving in Levi's head at this time. I mean, we see that Peter did as much in the presence of Jesus' holiness. He acknowledged that he was a sinner. But I also think it's interesting that Jesus does not ask him to follow him. 
He, he said to follow him. He told. He commanded. And in that moment, I believe there was a miracle that took place in the heart of Levi. Levi was a, a man who made a career extorting money from people, stealing, threatening, being violent. And he repented of that. He, le- he physically left that area. He forsook his former life. He abandoned it. And he found true, real fulfillment in this person that called him. Levi knew his reputation, and I think he knew that Jesus saw right into his heart, past the, the, the social taboo and the, the, the stigma that was around tax collectors, and he saw right into who Levi was, and Jesus called him anyway. This is how far down the ladder Jesus is willing to call sinners. Matthew, or Levi, I did it, uh, represented absolutely, to in the, at least in the minds of the Pharisees, the unredeemable, the people who are just f- so far beyond any possibility of, 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 of getting right with God or, or even attempting to be holy. And Jesus called him anyway. Jesus called the lowest. And we see here that Levi made an irreversible break with his past life. That's not a, a ridiculous stretch of the imagination, I don't think. When you're in charge of, let's just say, for instance, you're in charge of taxes. You're sitting in your, your tax office and you have a large sum of money. It might be in the middle of the day, so you've already done your morning of collecting. You have a table full of money, right? And some person calls you and says, hey, I'm going over here. Follow me. And you just get up and leave. You don't like the money in like a, a lockbox or something. You don't lock the doors. You just leave. You have left all of your money there. It's, it's not unreasonable to think that you would certainly never have a job in that field ever again, but uh, certainly maybe even um, not trusted with any type of responsibility in jobs uh, from that point on. So, so Matthew has Levi. I'm going to start doing it now that I've done it once. I'm going to start doing it. Levi has completely turned away from and made an irreversible break with the past life that he that he lived. We read in Luke fourteen thirty three, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the cost of true discipleship. Understanding that you are a sinner and forsaking your former life, the former life that Jesus has led you away from. Let's continue here in verses twenty nine and thirty. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I am a person who really enjoys reading. And I really enjoy learning, particularly. Um, More than just reading fiction and things like that, I enjoy reading things that I learn something about. And I think my favorite things that I read are like these, um, these lists of like misconceptions. Um, it'll be like 10 things that you've always believed to be true that turn out not to be true, or uh, vice versa, like 10 things that you've always thought weren't true and are actually true. And I, I get so excited about this, and my poor wife is always the one who hears about it, no matter how... Because re- I, I know looking back at all these things, they're just the silliest, stupidest things I get excited over. But um, I remember uh, one day a couple weeks ago, I was reading one of these, and I said, I said you can't actually see the Great Wall of China from space. I had always heard that you could. And so when I learned this, my mind was, I had to take a nap afterwards because my, my entire, I was on sinking sands. And so I said to her, I, I, I said, baby, I just read about how you can't actually see the Great Wall of China from space. And she does her whole routine whenever I say something stupid that I'm really excited about. She either gives a 
sympathetic eyebrow raise, you know, or she does one of those like, oh, wow, you know, because she loves me. But I can tell that in her eyes, I don't see the same fire that I feel. So I'm like, you can't see the Great Wall of China from space. This changes everything. And it really doesn't change anything. But I'm, I'm so excited about that in that instant of learning something new that I had always believed to be the way that things were. And suddenly the things aren't that way. And I think that Levi went through something uh, a little bit like this. Uh, when, he, when he had gone through this transformation by being called... Uh, out of his his life of a tax collector and being a follower of Jesus, uh, we read that he there was a great feast at at Levi's house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table. Now, uh, certainly some of these people had just been following Jesus at this time, but I believe it mentions tax collectors specifically because I believe these were friends of Levi. These were people that Levi knew, and because he had gone through this transformation of of once thinking something was the way things were, and having been totally redefined in that, having his world totally flipped and reversed, I believe that he wanted to share that excitement that he had with his friends. And that's why I believe that it mentions tax collectors specifically. Uh, We also read in in Luke 15 all of these parables about the the things that are lost and having been reclaimed, the the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the, the prodigal son, the lost son. And they always end with some kind of celebration because something that was lost has been found. And so I believe we're, we're seeing a lot of, of, of that here. We have a, a reclaiming of a lost sinner. Naturally, there's a reason to celebrate, but not everyone was there to celebrate. Because we read about the Pharisees, it says the Pharisees grumbled to the disciples, saying, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, all throughout Luke and all throughout any of the Gospels, uh, the interactions between Jesus and, and the Pharisees are always very tense, very rocky. Uh, Jesus kind of reserves his harshest criticisms for the Pharisees, who are supposed to be these uh, devout pillars uh, in their society of, of religious righteousness and all those things. But we also see some of my favorite instances of Jesus, I feel like, being very sarcastic towards the Pharisees in, in some ways. Um, so... Like I said, the Pharisees embodied this, this kind of self-perceived righteousness. They took all of the laws from the, the, the first five books. I'm blanking on the name of what that's called. Um, the Torah or the, the, um, the Pentateuch. Jim, you want to finish up for me? <laughs> um, but they would take all of these laws, and I, I think they, they found that there were over 600 different laws, like fastidious outward laws, um, mattering for the outward appearance and how you look to other people. And the Pharisees prided themselves on, on making these things like uh, huge deals in their life. They would, they would try to do all of these things. Not eating shellfish is one of them. Uh, ridiculous like things like that. And they would say, well, I, I do all of these things. I am way better than everyone else. So, uh, like I said, they're, they're looking on at, at, at this interaction uh, to, to have even talked to Levi to them was breaking a social normacy and a, a conduct and defiling, further proving that Jesus couldn't be who he said he was because he's, a, he's affiliating with these, these sinners and, and tax collectors. But then to go and dine with them, at this point they would probably start to begin to tear their hair out. This was offensive and unthinkable to them. Dining in the Jewish culture symbolizes a familiarity with, a friendship. It's not simply just going to, to eat somewhere because you're hungry, but you, you sit around a table with people that you are family with, you're friends with, you have uh, accepted them into your fold. It's, it, it has this familiarity. And so in this case, 
Jesus was seen as having a friendly relationship with these outcasts. This was absolutely unthinkable. And after, after having been embarrassed earlier by Jesus in uh, verses 21 through 24, after the Pharisees have said, you know, who can forgive sins? How are you claiming to do this? And then Jesus turns to this man and says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. And this man gets up and walks. And I, I imagine that was pretty embarrassing to the Pharisees. So it's, it's likely that they're grumbling at his disciples because they're not wanting to have another interaction like that again. But Jesus comes to answer these critiques anyway. Uh, and he says, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is where I feel like Jesus is kind of hitting his point home with a little bit of sarcasm towards these Pharisees. He looks at the Pharisees and their obsession with this external holiness that they've prided themselves on and and their self-perceived righteousness. And, And basically, I believe, is saying, I've only come to call people who aren't holy and righteous. Clearly, you guys are those things. There's no need for a savior in your case. Look at you. You guys are doing everything correctly obviously being sarcastic here. The problem is not that the Pharisees are doing everything correctly and the sinners and tax collectors are not. Uh, The the, the problem is that the Pharisees are blind to their own condition. They're identical to Levi and all the other sinners and tax collectors in that room in the same way that they're identical to all of us and that we are all sinners. And Jesus is also saying here, he's using the uh, physician metaphor by saying that someone who thinks that they're healthy doesn't go to a doctor because they don't think they need to. You can't uh, see cancer. That doesn't mean that you don't have it necessarily, but you can't see it. So if you don't see that you have cancer, why would you go to a doctor to see if you have cancer? You would have no need to. Um, and in this, in this interaction, we see that Jesus lays out his entire ministry target, his, his entire point of coming to earth, and, and his ministry is to call sinners to repentance. And that's our task as well. Jesus never shied away from associating with sinners. I feel like all too often we we kind of adopt this uh, pharisaical mindset where we, I don't think any of us in this room would say that we are better than anyone else outright. We would never say that we're perfect. But I think we can all think of at least one person in our lives or, or that we've seen or read about that we say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. You know, a, a good example would be someone like, like Hitler. You know, you can look at, at things you've done. Well, I told a couple of lies yesterday, but I never did anything that Hitler did. So, you know, I'm not as bad as Hitler. And that's, that's exactly, I think, what the Pharisees had in their mind. Uh, and, and so because we have these, these stigmas about people, well, I'm not as bad as the, the, the drugged-out population in our city, so I'm not going to associate with them because they're irredeemable. They're busy putting all of their money into their veins. Um, that is never what Jesus did. Jesus never shied away from opportunities to, to call sinners to repentance, to, to be with them, to dine with them. Verse 32 says that what he sought to accomplish with these sinners, he didn't join in on the sin. Being with them didn't uh, encourage or turn an indifferent eye to their sin, but he never missed an opportunity to call them to repentance, to turn them away from their sin. Luke 5, uh, 12 through 26, the, the healing of the paralytic, gives us Jesus' authority to call himself the physician. He has healed people miraculously already in Luke. 
and he has established his authority as the one who can forgive sins. We need a spiritual physician. Like Peter, like Levi, like the Pharisees, we are all sinners. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all. We all, from our birth, have spiritual cancer. And like real cancer, we need a physician who can heal us. Jesus came to call us from this bondage to this cancerous sin, and, and like First Peter 2.9 says, into his wonderful light. How can Jesus do this? How can he, how can he continue to, to be forgiving sins? Because he paid our price on the cross. He died the death that our sin costs. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The price of sin is death. Somebody got to die for our sins. Either we do or we continue reading, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Either we die for our sins or Christ already died for our sins. Luke 5, I believe, if, if we look at it, is a microcosm of what true repentance and conversion are. We have, we have milestones that we hit in our conversion. So if we fly over, we, like Peter, we have to confess and admit that we are sinners in the same boat as everyone else. Everyone else, the, the drug addict, Hitler, we are all in need of the same sacrifice, and we are all unworthy of the sacrifice of Christ. Like the leper, we need to recognize our spiritual condition, and we need to cry out to Jesus to be cleansed. Like the paralytic, we need to possess the extreme faith in Christ to heal us and forgive us of our sins. We have to have the, the faith that Christ has paid our price and paid the, the, the price for our sins. And we, like Levi, have to abandon our life, abandon this world, abandon what we thought was right, forsake everything and follow him. We read here that Jesus calls the worst of the worst to be his followers, his disciples. He calls us to repent to turn away from our bondage to sin because we serve a merciful and gracious God. We who were dead, enemies of God, have been made alive in Christ and have a spot for us at his table. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for the time we spend in your word and the, the truths that are revealed to us. Father God, we confess that we are sinners, that we do not have it figured out. We confess that we are utterly unworthy of being loved by you, and we're so thankful for your grace and mercy that you loved us enough to send your Son to die our death. We're thankful that you called sinners, thankful that you call the lowest of the low, and that we can put our faith in you. We're thankful that you have cleansed us from our sins, and we're thankful that we don't have to depend on any righteousness that we can conjure up, but that we, we can depend on the righteousness of your Son. It's in Christ's name I pray.